So thank you to everybody for joining us at the Crude Tanker panel. Uh, we have a stellar panel with us. I would like to thank um, Chris Weatherby, uh, not only for moderating this panel, but also for being a great partner uh, for this event, for uh, being, um, you know, for sharing the heavy uh, lifting with us. Uh, Chris, thank you for another great event uh, and for all your effort and support. And of course, uh, this event would not have been as successful as it is without uh, the esteemed panelists that we have on board. So we uh, go, thank you, Jeff, uh, Lars, Harris, and, and Bob. Thank you to everybody. And I will turn it over to Chris. Yeah, thank you, Nicholas. I appreciate that. And, and thanks for the opportunity to let us uh, partner with you uh, for this great event. We've done it for the last several years and it's been a great success and we continue to uh, enjoy the partnership. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really pleased this morning to be hosting the, the tanker panel. This is always uh, one that I have enjoyed over the last several years, um, a sector that's near and dear to my heart. So Nicholas did sort of the brief introductions and I don't want to spend too much time on that. You guys generally know the players. Um, these are the main people you want to be speaking to on the tanker industry. So appreciate all the gentlemen on the panel joining us. Um, you know, I kind of want to jump right in and, and talk a little bit about the state of the market as it stands right now. 2020 was a very volatile year uh, with some pretty significant peaks and then unfortunately some, some fairly deep valleys as well. And I, I think that's as good a place to start as, as any. Um, maybe I'm going to kick this first one to Hugo. So, you know, we saw this staggering volatility in 2020. Um, not only in realized rates, but also expectations around the market. If we kind of flash back to the end of 19 coming into 2020, which I know feels like years ago, as opposed to just about a little more than a year ago, um, it was a much different landscape. Uh, we saw rates hit 300,000 at one point, and obviously rates are quite low as they stand right now. How, is you, how are you as a tanker owner adjusting your approach to the market currently? Are you doing things differently here in 2021 than you've done in the past, given the volatility we've seen? Um, in the big picture, not really. Uh, we are in this industry because we like the volatility. We embrace the volatility and we are exposed to a spot market because we like that volatility. So you have different type of owners and, and some owners prefer to uh, have fixed contract. And, and we believe that overall, um, the rewards are, are less uh, attractive than when you are on the spot market. And if we just take that decision, obviously, uh, we have to be prepared for uh, that volatility. What does that mean? Um, well, it simply means that you have to have a strong balance sheet, you have to have a decent liquidity position, because uh, admittedly today, uh, we're not making uh, even break even on, on our ships. So we have had absolutely fantastic earnings last year. Um, we took part of that in reserve, we distribute quite a lot of the rest to our shoulders via dividends and uh, share buyback. Uh, but obviously, all of that uh, still um, uh, means that we continue to have a, a strong balance sheet. And then the second thing that I wanted to highlight, um, it is true that we are in, in dire territories, but let's not forget that we've all been around for a certain amount of time in, in, in this market. Um, and we like also the, the volatility or the cyclicality because that enables us to grow our platform at the low point in the cycle. So if we didn't have that cyclicality, you wouldn't, ha you wouldn't have uh, the opportunities to grow the platform. And that, that, I think, is a very important aspect, uh, as much for the ship owners as it is for the investors, because if they want to make a good return, they better come in and join in at the uh, bottom of the cycle and not wait for the rates to uh, go skyrocket like you mentioned 300,000. At that time, the share price is probably at a very high level and not so attractive anymore. 
Okay, that's uh, that's good perspective. Lars, I want to kick it over to you to kind of ask basically the same question. Obviously, lots of volatility at Frontline. Are you guys doing anything differently? How are you approaching the market in 2021? Well, kind of, we, we um, as Hugo said, we're, we're used to kind of working in both uh, high and low markets. Uh, we don't have it for taking a lot of uh, time charter coverage. So basically, we have to adapt to the current market we're in. And, and in, in tankers, you have like a long game and a short game, and uh, you have various ways of, of positioning your fleet in order to to, to try and, and, uh, and mitigate uh, the conditions. Um, so, so that's basically what we're focusing on. And, and one of those um, kind of things you can mitigate is your ballast speed, right? Uh, and you can also choose kind of where you position your fleet and so forth. And I think, you know, for a current snapshot of the market right now, we're in a situation where I think you, you have what I like to call crowding out, where, where vessels are kind of seeking around the globe, trying to figure out where the best uh, margin lies. And then finally, when you have an, uh, an incident like, uh, like what happened to Texas in the US Gulf now, uh, you get the situation where the markets all of a sudden are very tight, both for Seuss Maxis and Aframaxis. So, so we are kind of in a more normalized market coming, you know, we're going to know tomorrow actually how, how OPEC plan uh, Q2. And, and, uh, you know, if we see significant increase of, of oil in this market, uh, you'll have a fleet that's scattered around the globe trying to search for these margins. So kind of the key milk runs uh, will get under pressure pretty quickly. Got it. That makes sense. Yes, we're all looking forward to that. Um, Bob, maybe I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. So thinking a little bit longer term, do you think there is there are any lasting impacts or lessons learned from the volatility that we've seen in the last year? You know, we, we've seen the, we've seen this in, in years past, so I, I don't know that the answer is that there's anything specifically that you want to do differently. But as you think about sort of the potential opportunities that can be created from this, whether it be opportunities to build the fleet or otherwise, um, you know, how are you guys thinking about lessons learned from last year? Yeah, did we ever learn any lessons? Um, first of all, let me just backtrack. You said $300,000 a day and we're in worse shape now. It seems like in any of these spikes, there are one or two ships that are fixed at $300,000 a day. And everyone thinks, wow, you're all making $300,000 a day. And ultimately that fixture fails. Um, so the perception is we're all making that kind of money. But when the, unfortunately, when the market's at 10,000 bucks a day, we're all making 10,000 bucks a day. So on the downside, we seem to absorb a lot of it. But um, do we learn any lessons? You know, I don't know how many conferences I've been to where someone starts off by reading a quote about the market and the future. And then they reveal that quote from hundred years ago. And, um, you know, the nature of the business drives a cyclicality, I think, not, um, not necessarily how we behave. And I think the biggest change in, in the driver of cyclicality is gonna be the leverage. There's not as much leverage available. There's not as much capital available. Um, institutionally, there's less interest in the industry. So my view is as the leverage comes down, the volatility should come down if economics follow you know, normal economic behavior. But as far as our, our, um, our lessons, you know, we're all chasing that volatility. The people on the screen here are in this business for a reason. They're in this business because they like the volatility and they think they can optimize it and take advantage of it. So um, you know, the, uh, the extreme nature of it does hurt sometimes, but that's why we're all here. And I don't Got think it looks like business. Okay, uh, that's helpful. 
Jeff, I'm going to sort of take off of Bob's cue. You talked about, um, you know, the finance side. You're the you're the CFO of the panel here, so maybe I'll kick it over to you, Jeff, and give a sense of when you think about sort of managing balance sheet risk and deploying capital. How are you thinking about it in 2021? Well, I'll back up a little bit to the cycle question that the others addressed. I mean, uh, and segue that in. I look back just a little over a year ago, beginning of 2020, before we really knew what because we couldn't know what COVID was going to do. We were looking at a pretty good market. Uh, we were looking at an up cycle for probably a couple of years, at least maybe more, three years, which would then uh, inevitably been followed by a down cycle. And, you know, uh, so we were looking at uh, harvesting cash for a while. And instead we got a short, brutal, volatile COVID cycle, right? And, but this is, as the others were saying, just part of the business. Volatility you know, has come to shipping in so many different ways. This was a unique or new, but uh, so we got a new up cycle. We took advantage of it, all of us on the panel to build up liquidity, delever, return cash to shareholders, be prepared for most importantly, and this goes to your question, be prepared for the down cycle that inevitably follows. So here we are, less levered, a lot of liquidity, ready for cash flow slight drains, and equally posed, poised for the two opportunities that a down cycle gives us. There's, there's the gift of the thing. We weren't expecting the opportunity of a down cycle in 2021. It was going to be two or three more years. So now we still have the, we have the opportunity that we didn't expect potentially allocate capital to assets uh, if they're looking attractive and we have good balance sheets to do it. And for those of us that are still trading at a really good, really steep enough discount to uh, our NAV, we equally have the opportunity to create value per share by buying our shares. So if, with enough liquidity, you, you can pursue, pursue both. And that's, that's our plan. Felt like I heard a little bit of sort of the old banker in there somewhere with that answer. That was a really good one. I appreciate it. a lot of a lot of opportunistic uh, comments there. So that was a that was a helpful answer. Thanks, Jeff. Harris, I want to come down to you. Talk a little bit about um, you know sort of segueing off of that as you guys think at Chacos. What is the strategy for twenty one? How are you going to adapt? What are the opportunities you think you could take care of? Thanks, Chris. Uh, we are. Uh, we're living interesting, uh, interesting times. Uh, we do. Uh, uh, this pandemic has uh, kind of uh, uh, took us all by surprise. Uh, as Jeff said, we were all expecting the super cycle uh, to, to come, you know, uh, our way, you know, sooner uh, than uh, than uh, reality uh, uh, produced. Uh, all the dynamics uh, were and still are in uh, in our favor. Uh, historical low order book. Uh, demand uh, was at uh, uh, historical highs pre-COVID. Uh, we had uh, the IMO regulations that uh, were accelerating the scrapping of uh, all the tonnage. So the supply was uh, reducing, was expected to reduce even, uh, uh, even more. So everything was shaping up to, uh, for us to have this super cycle. Unfortunately, things uh, unfolded differently. And uh, uh, that gave us, uh, that created this gap uh, if you like, uh, uh, that we expect to uh, to uh, uh, to make up in uh, in, in the future. Uh, we are all dancing on the tune of the vaccine and the rollout of the vaccine and how quickly the vaccine, uh, you know, will uh, will change not only uh, you know the uh, you know the health part, if you like, of the equation, but also the sentiment, which will eventually translate into. Uh, 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 people traveling again and uh, those missed barrels going coming back into the market. 
uh, as a result, uh, since we are kind of in no man's land uh, these days, and uh, uh, however, uh, we do expect, uh, we do see some light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps towards you know, the, the second half of the year, uh, we're trying to take advantage of this low market by uh, doing some uh, uh, or a lot of uh, housekeeping work, if you like, uh, by uh, accelerating uh, to the extent possible some of the uh, uh, dry docking special service that we had uh, scattered uh, throughout, you know, 21. We're bringing uh, some of them forward to the extent that we're allowed to uh, into, you know, the first half uh, in order uh, to be ready uh, to uh, to take advantage of uh, of an improving market as we expect to see uh, towards the, uh, the the second half of uh, of the year. Uh, so uh, that's uh, on the one hand, you know, we are uh, trying to put this uh, cost element of our operations behind us uh, when the market uh, it, it's uh, ripe to be uh, in a good sense uh, exploited. Uh, we're also um, refraining, uh, contrary to our business model, uh, from uh, chartering more vessels into longer-term contracts. Mm. So uh, today we have uh, a much bigger spot exposure than uh, than uh, than usual. We're probably closer to a 50-50 or 60-40 uh, TC spot, and uh, we have historically traded at 78% time charger to spot. Uh, so we are waiting to see how the market will unfold vis-a-vis uh, -vis the rates and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, perhaps later or to, uh, at some point in the second half, we will start recalibrating our model uh, back into the more secure revenue kind of contracts. Uh, uh, but un until then, uh, uh, we are just kind of positioning ourselves. Uh, I I as I... Uh, uh, as I was talking to an investor earlier, uh, he asked me, you know, uh, where do you think, uh, what stage are you guys in or the industry? I said, well, we feel like, you know, the runners, the speed, uh, you know, the sprint runners uh, before the 100, uh, uh, the 100 meter final in the Olympics. We're all in our lanes uh, doing the little warm ups, the little jumps and are uh, waiting to, be, to, to position ourselves and, uh, and to, to hear the gunshots. And uh, uh, I think... Uh, you know, we could have, uh, you know, the usual customary false starts, but eventually the sprinters will start running. And uh, I think we are there. We are, we are in the stadium. Got it. Okay. That's an interesting analogy. I like that one. So, so Hugo, what's going to be the starting gun? What's the next catalyst for rates going forward here? Well, I think that everybody's waiting indeed for the vaccine campaign to be successful. Um, I think different countries will take a, a different uh, pulse on that. Some of them are, are more advanced than others, but some of them are prepared to relax the measures a little bit earlier than uh, uh, before reaching the, the famous 70% uh, herd immunity or, or whatever it's called. Um, so basically, we, we believe that uh, the measures will be uh, relaxed by the summer. Uh, and then it's going to be a little bit gradual for the people to return to uh, some form of normality. And, and it's going to be probably a, a new uh, definition of what we call normal. Um, from that aspect, we, we expect uh, a strong recovery in the oil demand. Uh, indeed, people uh, are going to start traveling. Uh, and this is uh, uh, true for business and true for uh, tourism. Um, I think that after a period of... Uh, you know, so many restrictions uh, imposed on people, we may even uh, contemplate uh, a sort of a, a, an explosion in the other direction where people really want to do what they have not been able to do. Uh, and then uh, yeah, we will arrive to some form of, of normality. 
putting a, a, a real end date uh, and therefore a real recovery in the uh, oil demand uh, market is very difficult. Um, I think a pre-COVID, uh, it's fair to say that we had reached 100 million barrels per day of uh, consumption and therefore the production was following that. Um, we will see what happened tomorrow uh, on the OPEC and where we see the first signal of that. And, and we, I suppose that on this panel, we are very much expecting the, uh, to, to see the first signal of that. Uh, but otherwise, the perspective at Euronav is that uh, we're not going to fully be in full re recovery before the, uh, the end of the year or before the start of the next winter. Uh, and then the second catalyst is obviously how many ships are going to be scrapped in the meantime. Because um, as many other people said in this panel, um, when the market is in such uh, depression, uh, the very positive thing is that uh, people cannot afford to maintain uh, very old ships uh, and return them after a very expensive survey uh, into a loss-making uh, market. So we've seen uh, about 11 ships being scrapped uh, this year, if we take into account the six ships that were um, uh, announced by Costco. Uh, and we are only at the beginning of March. So in the first two months, 11 ships, I mean, if you were to extrapolate that we would be at 60 ships, that would be a dream scenario. If by the end of the year, we had 60 ships recycled, I think that we are on for a fantastic market, uh, which would start next winter or next year. But you know, we don't work in calendar years in, the, in this market. Those are the two uh, very strong catalysts that I, I would see uh, before um, uh, seeing a, a full recovery, yeah. Got it. Lars, I want to come down to you. OPEC meeting, you know, increased production levels. Does that move the needle much? It sounds like obviously maybe more fulsome recovery from a global economic perspective is really what this industry needs. But, it, you know, the OPEC could be a sort of step in that direction. Does that does that move the needle for you? I, I, I think it does. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, kind of there is an ongoing balancing act for for OPEC plus uh, going on right now. And, uh, you know, we kind of, we want to, or they want to draw down on inventories, uh, but they also want a recovery. Uh, I think they're already getting signals from uh, uh, quite a few economies that, uh, you know, $65, $70 crude is not ideal for, for uh, the recovery story. Uh, and the same time, uh, so at the same time as they want to have a healthy oil price, they also want to keep uh, U.S. fracking kind of uh, out of the equation in, in in a big way at least. Um, so so I think if you know at the end of the day we have to kind of look at uh, the demand side and what can it absorb uh, you know on the supply side and uh, you know to me it looks like or at least uh, the experts say that uh, between one and one and a half million barrels in April uh, you know should be manageable. Um, but uh, there is a lot of uh, kind of uh, wheels in, in, in turn here. So, so uh, and again, this is a balancing act. But, but I think this one and a half million barrels will definitively be a trigger to, to, to uh, kind of support the sentiment for, for the tanker industry. Uh, and as I said, we've already seen uh, certain pockets in the market tighten up uh, relatively quickly uh, once you have one adverse... Uh, uh, kind of uh, occasion with with the with the Texas freeze, and uh, so, so so I think kind of this would give uh, the owners some of their gumption back and uh, be able to to actually look at their uh, TC results and see you know negative I'm I'm not really going to sell my ships on that, uh, so maybe I'll just hold back now and wait for for um, for recovery and uh, because the challenge the market has had now is that we've been 
actually for an extended period of time, a large majority of the market for those owners who, who don't have scrubbers and don't have modern eco ships have been making negative numbers, hadn't it been for the fact that they have a, you know, a cheap bunker in their tanks. So, so there has to be a kind of awakening here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think OPEC will, 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 could very well be the trigger. Okay, got it. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Bob, I want to come to you. We talked last week briefly um, about reopening trades. How do we think about tankers in the context of reopening, right? Texas yesterday announced that they were going to kind of go full reopen, no mask, mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the U.S. appears like it's arguably maybe a bit of a head of, of its European counterparts in terms of vaccine distribution. So maybe there will be a, a faster reopening here. But, you know, how important is that? How, is impor how important is it to get these sort of intercontinental aircraft off the ground flying again? I, the, the whole thing is airplanes. It's, you know, over 40% of the missing barrels. And um, I don't know where, where all, how people are feeling where everyone else sits, but people here want to move. Um, they want to fly, they want to drive, they want to get out. Uh, they want to get out, their spouse wants them out, their kids want them out, everybody wants to go somewhere. And um, you know, I feel the pent up demand, but we're all, whatever bubble we've lived in before has gotten smaller because you know, we really can't go anywhere and, and hear what everyone else has to say. Um, I heard on the radio this morning on Bloomberg about the uh, Texas unmasking. And um, the guy in Bloomberg was a Brit and he said to his American counterpart, what are they gonna do about Texas? What are they gonna do about it? You know, with the, the, with the, uh, the conviction, something must be done to stop them from taking the masks off and going back to some sort of normal level. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, we were far ahead in how many people contacted the disease. And from what I've read and heard for everyone that was confirmed had the disease as a multiple of that who may have had it and had some immunity. Um, the numbers are coming down quickly in our country and, and elsewhere. So, um, you know, it's springtime and we've been cooped up. And I, I really think, as Hugo said, it could be an explosion. And of course, by, by, def, by definition of being in this business, we're all optimists. And um, we've all told our investors forever, recovery is six months away. Um, we've always said that, but, you know, this time there is a, a definitive thing that can happen. And that happen is some sort of return to, you know, where we were before this. And to get that 100 million barrel a day level, I think is going to take uh, the airplanes in the sky and they're yeah. on the ground and they're waiting to move. So uh, I'm very, very optimistic about what's going to happen a little bit, just a little bit later in this year. Got it. That, that That's helpful. And just to remind everybody watching, you can put key, you know questions in uh, that I can ask the panelists and, and a few of them have come in. So Harry, I want to, Harry, I want to turn it over to you to ask one of these questions here. So one of the one of the viewers says, with negative TCEs on so many routes, are owners considering idling ships in order to kind of put a floor into rates? Is that something that that, that you consider at all? How do you think about that? Uh, not really. It's not very easy to idle a vessel. Uh, you know, it all depends on where the vessel uh, uh, is internationally. So you cannot just uh, park your vessel, uh, you know, at, at uh, any point, uh, uh, you know, in uh, in uh, on on the map. Uh, I think it's more because uh, this uh, depression in rates, if you like, uh, uh, it's kind of pandemic related, uh, if you like, uh, almost exclusively. And we do see uh, an end in sight. Uh, now, it's, it, it's not a matter of uh, when or, or, or if, but uh, rather uh, when. And uh, we are, you know, we do expect uh, in the second half, at some point in the second half uh, of, of, of the year, uh, we should be in a position to see uh, rates improving and, uh, and, uh, and uh, making sense to operate. 
uh, we wouldn't lay up vessels. Uh, I, I would expect that uh, people will keep the vessel operating uh, because when you lay up vessels, you will either do it with uh, a full crew on board, uh, and but that you cannot do it in, in, in you know indefinitely at some point. You know, you will either you know uh, reduce it to a skeleton crew, or you know have all these people there doing uh, effectively you know and nothing much. So it's it's not very. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's the optimal way to to do it uh, uh, when we are seeing uh, um, an end to uh, uh, to this uh, crisis. Uh, you need to be on the radar screen. You need to be around. You need to be moving oil, uh, uh, even at, uh, at you know at at the cost, at the loss for for a small period of time, uh, because the vessel needs to be there. You need to be there uh, to, to take advantage and and have that vessel available, perhaps at some different part of the world uh, that you you would expect uh, the demand will uh, will uh, jump first. So uh, uh, you need to be uh, trading. It's part, you know, losing some money for a short period of time. It's part and parcel of shipping or any industry for that matter. Uh, you know, we're all uh, uh, in this industry for the long haul. So, uh, and all of us on this uh, panel, uh, uh, you know, in a way we can afford to, uh, uh, to go through some loss making uh, trips, uh, but making sure that the vessels are, you know, the propellers are running, the vessels are operating and are positioning uh, themselves to be, uh, uh, at, at, at a place in uh, that could potentially be very lucrative uh, when the market uh, rebounds. So, uh, idling vessels, okay, it, <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, it would be great for uh, the rest of us if, if an owner wants to idle, perfect for the rest of us that, uh, that want to operate because that takes out uh, supply. But uh, I don't think it, uh, you know, since you know, thinks uh, uh, the bad market will, uh, uh, fingers crossed, uh, be short-lived. Uh, we don't think it makes any long-term economic sense to, to to idle today. Okay, okay, that's helpful. Yeah, if I can just add to, to Harry's comment there, because um, and he's absolutely right. You, you, you can't really idle a ship, uh, or at least in modern times, you don't don't really do it because there's always somebody there to 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 move their ship for you know at any rate, literally. Um, correct, yeah. so, so, so we kind of gotten uh, used to just sail through the storm rather than than stopping and waiting for it to mm -hmm. pass. But uh, I have to say though that uh, we, we do as owners have have a duty to 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 kind of uh, consider the fact that is it correct to be the thirteenth offer on a cargo? Is it correct to 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 drop your pants or or, or price um, kind of at every turn to to, to wiggle out? Uh, business that's loss making uh, so so i so i'd like to say that you can for sure you you, you maybe you don't idle but you can say no um, and I, I think our clients are are not used enough to to, to getting the word no mm. um, you know this does doesn't make any sense at all um, so so uh, there we as owners have a collective duty to to kind of uh, well yeah, absolutely right lars absolutely right and and may may I add on to that? Uh, we, we have a duty to say no when the when uh, we are subsidizing uh, basically our customers. <laughs> but uh, uh, the other point that uh, Lars you made earlier was slow steam. I mean, there is no reason to hurry up to uh, a negative return market. Okay, 
So when, when we watch, and, and we had a conversation uh, about that uh, with many owners on, the other day on another panel, uh, when we watch the average speed that is computed by some of the brokers, this is a shame. I mean, people don't understand the economics. Right. The, the, the consumption is exponential. So if you reduce by one knot or two knot, it's a massive reduction on what you're going to consume. And uh, the opportunity lost, because that's what they are talking about, is minimal, absolutely minimal in the market where we are in. Mm -hmm. So um, please focus, guys. Yeah, it's a good point. And it kind of comes back to, um, I, I think, the broader question about consolidation in the industry and actually having people sort of playing off of the same playbook. You know, I, I've asked this question on panels before, and I think at times investors have sort of hoped for potential meaningful consolidation and, and maybe have been disappointed by it. You know, Jeff, you're back here. So let me kind of throw this towards you. Then I want, then I need to come back to scrapping because there's been probably about 10 questions that have come in since we've been talking <laughs> about scrapping. Um, but Jeff, any thoughts around <laughs> consolidation? Is there any real hope that we can see you know, meaningful sort of fleet on fleet type of consolidation in a downturn like we're in right now? I'm not sure we have Jeff. He might be, he might be frozen there. So Bob, maybe I'll throw it to you. What's your, sure. what's your take? Can we consolidate this industry? Uh, we consolidate and there's a consolidation through mergers of companies or through, through pooling exercises. Um, you know, the, I don't know if it's a solution. Yeah, I took a little vacation we, there. Uh, <laughs> I'm back. Okay. We can hear Jeff now. Jeffrey, are you live now or are you a little delayed? It's hard to tell. I'll pick up when he starts. Yeah, why, why don't you go ahead, Bob, and then okay. Jeff, we'll get you in after Bob goes. Go ahead, Bob. Sorry. It's not necessarily a solution. Oh, if you have right. five, five people bidding for a ship um, as opposed to 10. Uh, can you hear me now? Go ahead, Jeff. You got it. Avis and Hertz in the car rental business dominated the industry, and there were a few other followers along. And one oh, of them was my technology. So, uh, keep going, Bob. All right. Um, it would take massive consolidation. It's an extremely fragmented business. Um, you know, on the on the larger ships, the Visa and the Suez a bit less, but it would take a lot to make any difference in the rates. It only takes a few players bidding for the same cargo to drive the rates down. As I said, in the rental car business, there's Avis and there's Hertz. Um, and one of them still went out of business. In the airline industry, the same thing. It takes a lot of consolidation before you can actually drive the price. In the airline industry, there are a lot of small consumers. There aren't a few big you know, uh, customers who drive the race of the airplanes down. So it's a partial solution, but competition will keep it down. Understood. Supply, supply and demand. Yeah, that makes sense. J Jeff, do we have you back live? This is where we like them, Chris. I don't know. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you. Yeah, I was just going to throw that same question <laughs> your way about uh, about consolidation. If you have any thoughts on that, uh, you know, I, I think the way to look at it is not that it's consolidation that's required, but I think scale is required. Uh, and, and the reason that's been talked about a lot, but I think the reason that is particularly important as we enter this, you know, where we are in the in this decade of uh, where we'll be focused on. Uh, a, regulations for carbon emissions or just desire for greenhouse gas emissions and other, um, you know, other, other trends that are going to be really important. It's going to be 
necessary to be a larger company to tackle the technological and regulatory uh, challenges that we'll have to, to run our business and be a responsible you know, stakeholder in, in the world. So I think it's not going to be so easy for the smaller shipholders to do that. So I don't think it's consolidation for the sake of consolidation, but if that's a, a path towards scale, then I think you might see some more of it. Got it. Um, Could you hear me? I could, and that was a good answer. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hugo, I'm going to throw this over to you. There's a couple questions here, but do you think an alliance like you have on the container side is something that's at all possible? That's a question from the audience. Um, look, we uh, we were the founders uh, uh, of a pool together with uh, Frontline and, and four other players in 2000. The pool is still in existence with uh, many different uh, participants in it, uh, INSW. Um, the old OSG was also a founder and INSW is still in it. Uh, and I must say that it's particularly difficult to convince owners to, uh, to join the pool. And I don't think that the front line of this world needs to join the pool because they're big enough. Uh, Jeff is absolutely right that you need to have a minimum scale. Uh, but I think that for some uh, of the smaller owners, it's, it's particularly interesting to join the pool. Uh, when Bob had VLCC join the pool, hopefully uh, that was a good experience. Uh, at least that's yeah. what you told us. And we can only invite people to, to, to join uh, the pool. I mean, from time to time, it's perceived to be a year enough pool, maybe because we are uh, the largest uh, player. But I can assure you, and, and uh, there are several people on the panel uh, that can testify that, that it's run in a completely independent, neutral way. And that's the way it should be. Um, so that's the pooling concept. An alliance, um, we've tried it with, uh, with Frontline uh, two years ago. So the pool had an alliance with Frontline. And I think we both agreed that it was not as powerful as a pool. Uh, and we decided to amicably uh, dissolve it with very little consequence for uh, a frontline or for the pool itself. Uh, and we both performed very strongly in the market after that, as we did before that. So the impact of that alliance was not, uh, uh, was not felt um, the effort that we had to put in uh, because you need to uh, coordinate a lot of things. You need new systems, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not, I'm not a big fan of alliance unless you would propose me an alliance that would somehow uh, uh, join together one third of the market, then of course we would join, we would jump in. But uh, if it's a smaller alliance, I don't think that it has uh, uh, benefits uh, over and above a proper pool. Okay, okay, that's helpful. Um, a bunch have come in on scrapping. I know we talked about it briefly before, but Lars, let me just get your perspective on scrapping. Do we think we can see these numbers sort of significantly get better, get bigger, like Hugo talked about before? Can we take what we've seen so far and run rate it? Certainly the last few months of last year were quite elevated. Uh, well, sure, I, 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 I surely hope so. Uh, the challenge we have right now is, uh, and I've, I've said this before on, on other panels as well, we have what I refer to as a dark web of oil, um, where oil is trading, sanction barrels are trading on ships that otherwise would have been uh, sold for recycling. Um, and, and we can see this in, in, in the markets where, where um, 17 to, to 19 year old uh, VLCCs are being sold for north of $20 million to kind of undisclosed buyers. And these ships trade uh, and they move uh, significant volumes of oil. So, so that's where all these ships are that uh, would have been a part of the statistics had it been for, 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 for that. Uh, so, so this can end in two ways. Either uh, you get uh, proper authorities involved, or secondly, um, if uh, kind of EU and US um, 
get back to the table and and we end up with a with a trade deal with uh, with Iran or a nuclear deal with Iran that uh, that is edible to 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 the rest of the world a lot of these barrels won't kind of be traveling the way they're doing it right now so so i think that's the the big challenge but for for the commercial oil market that all on this panel are involved in that trade proper uh, oil and and uh, on proper ships with proper papers and so forth um, we you know Kind of uh, these vessels have left kind of our market already, so so you quite, you know and, and effectively you know we've looked at that kind of ships passing twenty years that the best case fifty uh, percent as 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 useful as uh, as a modern ship, and uh, so, so so these ships are actually tailing off anyhow, but it's just painful right now because right now I think we have a significant portion of these ships uh, sailing the waters. And um, but but that, that's basically my answer. I, I think we will, you know, once this opportunity to make millions of dollars of uh, of uh, sanctioned barrels uh, disappears, uh, then we'll we'll see an accelerated um, kind of amount of of vessels uh, uh, heading for recycling. Okay, that's helpful. Number of questions that have come in around asset values, and then there's some questions about buyback, and I want to get to Hugo on that. But first, let's go to Bob. There's a couple of specific ones for you, and I think we can kind of tie in the, the asset value. So I think there's a first one that says, as a private company, how do you view sort of NAV? Is it a useful metric for you? Do you use it? And then I think there's another question for you specifically about where you might see opportunities in terms of fleet additions, what size, what types of ships, those kinds of things. So let sure. me throw it to you for sort of starting off the general asset value and sort of attractiveness discussion. Sure, I'll, I'll try to be quick. I know we don't have much time. There are a lot of questions. Um, NAV is, um, it's a difficult thing. I mean, it, it's, it should be an absolute number, but the, the reality is the market is really thin. And uh, on, on the larger ships, ships aren't bought and sold every day. So oftentimes you see an NAV and um, it has to be ship specific, location specific, whether the ship is bought or sold. Now that it doesn't have a scrubber, what's a survey position? I think the market is a little bit inefficient at valuing ships before and after surveys. Um, so we look at NAV uh, for our investors and we always have a caveat as, as to where we feel that is in the market. Uh, we use vessel values, we use different brokers, we take a combination of those, plus what we feel is you know where we feel we can sell a ship. Um, but ultimately it should be the, the present value of the discounted cash flow and what, what's expected. So um, you know we don't we're not a public company, so we don't have to. Uh, we don't have a met, met, metric against uh, what the investors that value us every day. Um, the second question was, where do we look to add right now? Um, our sweet spot is 10 year and older VLs and Suez. I think there's a lot of value there. Um, I think the optionality to the upside over the next year or so is tremendous. Uh, but again, that market is really thin to pick up assets from anyone on the screen here or anyone else in business. They want to hold on to those assets because they see the same opportunity that we do. So we hope is that some of the people, uh, their balance sheets aren't as strong. Maybe they have a, a large amount of vessels and to unload one right now uh, might be opportunity. You know, might be an opportunity for us because you know those those debt payments come around very quickly every, every quarter. So um, okay, that'll pass. I know we don't have a lot of time, as I said, and there are a lot of questions. Yeah, so I, I want to sort of tie that into the discussion of share buybacks versus purchases of assets. So Hugo. You guys have been active. What's your take on buying back stock? Are you buying back stock? And, and what are the opportunities on the asset side relative to your stock? Yeah, this is something that we have uh, expanded in uh, in recent years. I mean, certainly last year, we, we spent a, a lot of capital on share buyback, 118 million. 
we've earmarked another 50 million for this year. Uh, and that was at the time when we announced uh, Q4 and, and uh, truly the share price was 20% lower than it is today. So today we have sort of uh, closed the, back, the, the gap on NAV or we are very close to our NAV. Um, and uh, we are uh, at a point where it may not be required to do share buyback. Um, I think when we compare share buyback to um, uh, asset uh, purchase, if the share price is at or around NAV, we will always prefer to buy assets. Um, that, and, and certainly when we are still in sort of low territories for, for values, um, as I said at the, in my first interve intervention in this panel, um, the cyclicality of the market provides good opportunities at the bottom of the market. And we are at the bottom today. Uh, values went up uh, since the beginning of the year already. Uh, that's on the back of, uh, well, hopes that, uh, that the market can recover quickly, but also steel price going up, new building price going up. Uh, so it's, it's all those things together that you have to take into cons consideration uh, when uh, you, you want to take a decision on whether you do share buyback or whether you uh, buy uh, additional vessels. And, and as you know, we, are, we prefer to buy secondhand or resale of contract than uh, adding to the, to the world fleet um, because that's always an additional ship that is coming uh, into the fleet. So that's a little bit how we, how we think about it. Uh, many movable parts and, uh, and you cannot really set a policy on it. Uh, you really need to see all of those things together and then take a decision. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. I'm going to bounce around a little bit so we can get to all these questions. Jeff, I'm going to come your way. I think you're with us live here. So what's your uh, decarbonization strategy? So that's a, I knew we were going to get an ESG type question. So what's your take on that? Well, look, it's something that would, the ESG has is, is, is become important to, I'm sure, everyone on this panel. Uh, you know, it's e-waste has been a focus for several years now, we, and uh, we put it into practice I, well, in a couple of ways. One, on our ships, we've had a, a, what we call Get to Green um, a pro, a process program for the seafarers to try to um, you know, do the best they can to, to reduce emissions uh, for efficiency and for, for uh, just for the sake of lowering emissions. We, we tied uh, our progress on the Poseidon principles, uh, which itself is tied to the Paris uh, Climate Accord uh, objectives uh, in our first, uh, in, in the first uh, shipping loan that had a sustainability component. We did that a year ago. So, you know, we are working hard to be on track. Um, and as we look forward, you know, we look to, you know, what can be the more efficient types of ships, uh, you know, uh, that uh, could either be uh, part of the transition or part of the long-term solution. So I think it's run the ships that we have as efficiently as possible. Look for even little ways now, the, the newest ducks, the slick paint, whatever, whatever you can do uh, to eke out some, some more efficiency and less emissions. And then also plan for the future, the, the, A, the transitional future and B, the longer term future uh, for propul propulsion and different matters that'll reduce uh, different methods of reducing the emissions. So it's, it's all of that, uh, Christian. Yeah. Okay. No, helpful. Harry, really quick coming to you in terms of the ESG angle, has it changed your ability or the way that you source capital? Jeff mentioned the, the Poseidon principles. I want to get a sense if it's something that's impacting the way you're sourcing capital. Yeah, it looks like you're on mute here. Sorry, uh, I was on mute. Uh, not really. I mean, we are still uh, doing uh, business as usual with our banks, uh, with our you know our, uh, plain vanilla lenders, and uh, uh, when we discuss you know with alternative uh, 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 capital providers, uh, it hasn't really come up. It's always a topic that uh, uh, we do discuss. 
similarly to, to to Jeff, we have established an internal uh, committee, if you like, to uh, to uh, to examine and to see uh, how you know all these uh, potential issues can be addressed uh, in terms of uh, of uh, uh, building new vessels and uh, the. Uh, uh, the most appropriate pro pro uh, propulsion in order to meet all the you know uh, the emission standards of now and possibly the future, but uh, we're not jumping the gun. You know we are uh, taking our time. Uh, we don't see uh, 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 this as something that needs to be uh, kind of implemented uh, today. So we are uh, continuing as uh, you know uh, as we have, but always uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, uh, we are. Uh, in a state of motion, and uh, and we would need to adapt uh, when the time comes. Uh, but we have our, you know, the, the finger uh, on the pulse, and uh, and uh, uh, we're monitoring uh, the market. If needs be, uh, we will, uh, you know, uh, consider uh, the alternatives. But as a company, we have had an environmental committee on the board for many many years, long before uh, this ESG became fashionable, and uh, and. Uh, uh, We'll see what the future brings, but uh, you know we are paying close attention to uh, you know the new propulsion systems, the new regulations, and uh, we will uh, you know respond and adapt accordingly. Got it. Uh, maybe the last one here, just to wrap up, Lars. I want to send it to you to ask about sort of in the context of ESG and just broadly thinking about placing new orders and thinking about where this the, this industry can go for a while. It, it, it sort of struck me that. It's very difficult to sort of put a, make a bet on a, on a potentially 25-year asset if you don't have certainty around lots of different dynamics. And I think ESG adds a, an increased level of uncertainty around emission standards and you know, capital availability. How do you approach that? Do you think we might be going through a multi-year phase of, of, frankly, just very, very low ordering so the order book could stay depressed for a period of time? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't think that's unlikely to put it that way. I, you know, you see some of these uh, relatively big orders are backed by oil majors that have a vested interest in, say, LNG or, or well, typically LNG. Um, but I, I would like to, you know, I had this question a few times and I'd like to draw a parallel to, to what happened, you know, with IMO 2020 and the, um, and the sulfur cap uh, that was enforced. You know, owners didn't really make the investment uh, until the last minute. And the reason why they did that was that at that time, there was some visibility of um, the economics of doing it. And right now we have extremely, we have no uh, kind of uh, visibility on the economics of uh, spending 10, $15 million extra uh, on the kit uh, where we don't, and we don't even know where the regulators are in the end. You know, we, we can all have a notion of where we're going, but uh, the timing of it and all that is 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 still uncertain. So, so so you know you can go and order a conventional ship, but uh, there is a lot of uncertainties uh, in the 25-year period that you you indicated there. And I think we have to see the market actually show us that uh, because we can't pay for it. You know, uh, it has to be uh, the cost has to be transferred to the end user in the, at the end of the day, and and we don't really see kind of how that will play out yet. Fantastic. I see Nicholas has joined us. So uh, I will, I think it's our signal to wrap up here. This has been a great conversation. So I appreciate the panelists for joining us. And, and Nicholas, I'll turn it back to you. Can I say one sentence? Sure. When we're all together in the same room and flying around the world again, the rates will be better. That's the signal. <laughs> I like to end on a positive note. So thank you, Bob. I appreciate that.
I'd like to say tremendous thanks. Uh, frankly, this is such an insightful and powerful panel. Uh, thank you very, very much to all of you. And uh, Chris, uh, thank you again. Thank you. And, uh, thank you. I, I think we have to repeat it soon again. <laughs> thank Sounds you. Good. Take care, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.